This is the Resilient Disciples Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm Ross. Thank you for listening. I'm thrilled that you are here today uh, because I am joined by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, Dr. McLaughlin, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to virtually be here. If those of you who have not heard of Dr. McLaughlin's work, I think it is something that you should absolutely check out. Um, The first thing I want to ask you is, unless my uh, preparing for this conversation is wrong, you have three books that are have been published or are going to be published in 2021? Uh, oh, no, wait a minute. Let me think. Uh, <laughs> it all gets tangled up on my mind. So, yeah, there was um, this was not planned quite like this, but every 10 questions every teen should ask mm-hmm. came out in March and the Secular Creed came out in April. And Is Christmas Unbelievable just came out in September. That was planned, but it wasn't planned that I would have two books in two months. <laughs> I'm just saying that is quite a quarantine. I know that uh, the books, you know, books take longer than that, but I'm just uh, very, I'm very, as someone who's written exactly zero books, that was one of the first things that uh, stood out to me about um, you as an author, you as a thinker. Uh, for those of you who have not connected with her work, you may have uh, become familiar with uh Confronting Christianity. Um, but we're going to zero in on one of your books, which is 10 questions every teen should ask. And it's something that I want to start with you. This book came out of your, your book, Confronting Christianity, in a way that I think is unique. So for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with apologetics, or the purpose or the sort of philosophy behind books like this, can you explain to folks how 10 questions came to be? What was that process? Yeah, so I I wrote Confronting Christianity in order to speak directly to non-believers. Okay. So a lot of apologetics books are written actually to believers saying, hey, here's how you might talk to your non-Christian friend about these issues, or here's how you might wrestle with these issues for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something slightly different, which is to say, here's a book that you uh, as a Christian can hopefully read and and benefit from as, as you kind of wrestle with these issues for yourself but then actually you could give it to a friend and it's mostly written for that or it's, it's written in a way that's specifically designed to reach them and um i think you know one of the pieces that went into that was not just saying okay i'm going to sort of speak to the, the reader as if he or she is not a christian but that i'm also going to say okay here here are it seems to me the 12 major concerns or questions or issues that people have that keep them from even considering Christianity. Actually, it's not like they're sort of considering Christianity and find it wanting. They're not even considering whether Christianity might be true yeah. for these reasons. And what I wanted to say first was, these are really good reasons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. if, if Christianity is in fact sort of hotbed of, of racism and misogyny and a sort of anti-intellectualism and, and cruelty to people in, in all sorts of ways, if it doesn't have a, a, you know, a good account of um, suffering, uh, and if if there's a sort of uh, um, an unjust God who sends people to to hell on a seemingly arbitrary basis, like the, this is a whole list of really good reasons yeah. to not consider Christianity. But and so I wanted to spend time with each of those to say, like, here's here's why this is a good reason, and here's why if we look actually more closely at that very concern, we find that it becomes a signpost to believing in Jesus rather than a roadblock against believing in Jesus. So I wrote that uh, for for adults very intentionally and and for actually kind of relatively educated 
adults sure. um, in the first instance, confront, I mean, aiming to be accessible, but uh, certainly kind of directed toward a particular kind of demographic. And as a, let me just say, as a non-relatively educated adult, it is very accessible for, you well, know, and I don't you want know, people, <laughs> I don't want people to hear that and be like, oh, I don't want a textbook. It's not a textbook. It reads very yeah, it, well and is very informative. Yeah, it's not a textbook, but it's intended for people who you know, probably have a, a degree of some sort. Um, mm -hmm. And after that came out and, and you know, people gave me good feedback on, on how it had helped them, it struck me, and a few people asked me sort of this directly, but also just in conversation with my own children, it struck me that actually even elementary school kids, and that's the stage that my kids are at, my, my eldest has just entered middle school, but at the stage I was writing the book was in elementary school, they're actually encountering the exact same questions that we adults encounter, whether sure. it's around race or sexuality or gender or, or science or, you know, all of these, all of these things. And it seemed to me there wasn't much that was written to them in the same way, aiming to, to have real sympathy for people's questions and concerns and to bring real data to bear both from the scriptures and, and from the academic world um, to suggest that, that, again, each of these issues points us to Jesus rather than steering us away from him. So, that, yeah, that's really why I, I wrote the book. Well, and I think it's it's a fantastic resource. People can check it out in the show notes of this episode. But there's two things that I kind of want to tease out of that. The first is, you know, for us, Awana has been committed to child discipleship for 70 years. We haven't necessarily always used words like resilient child discipleship, but our mission has been singular in that way. Mm. And one of the things that stands out to me is I became a Christ follower um, as an adult. I was mm. late in my college career when um, that happened. And I'm continually reminded at the ways in which people not believing in Jesus seems to make more, just isn't as much of a intellectual exercise for me as it is for those who grew up in the church or grew up in Awana programs, which mm -hmm. is the vast majority of adult Christians. And I'm curious for, you know, one of the things that I got excited reading about the book is I was like, it gives language to people. That was my lived experience going yeah. through a relatively uh, cultural Christian Christer kind of upbringing. But for folks who were only in the church and only ever operated in that system, I felt like it began to open their eye. It could potentially open someone's eyes to how the world is perceiving the church in a way that just wouldn't make sense to them because they've only ever lived in one system. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know it really does. And I think one of the, the ways in which we're struggling um, at all ages, actually, as, as Christians today, is that we are buying into a, a hostile relationship with our non-Christian kind of friends, family, colleagues, a community in, in one sense or another. Totally. And, and I think what that arises from, it comes from a couple of different places. One, it comes from the legitimate hostility that, that Christians will and do face today for holding traditional Christian beliefs, for example, about um, gender and sexuality. And, and um, I did some work in this book and, and even more work in the secular creed, kind of looking at uh, why there is this hostility and how actually we Christians have been part of creating that rather than just it's being, you know, the sinner folks out there is actually, although it's been the, been our sin in here that's that's brought us to this place. So there, there's that real... <laughs> Say it louder for the people in Rebecca. In the back. Yeah. Uh -huh. There's that real experience of possibility that, that we could have as Christians. But then it's it's the confusion about whether strong, clear, real disagreement 
entails hostility for Christians or not. Mm. And actually, if we look at the scriptures, we find a really interesting thing. We find complete clarity on Jesus's universal claims. I mean, there's no way you can read the New Testament or actually the Old Testament, but like, let's just look at the New Testament. You cannot read the New Testament. You can't even just read the Gospels and not come out realizing that Jesus is making the claim that he is, in fact, God in human flesh and the rightful king of all the world. So there's no, there's no room for us as Christians to have what you could call a kind of relativistic view of truth to say, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus is true for me, but it's fine if, you know, if you find more, more wisdom in Muhammad, for example, that's, that's fine. There's no space for that. But at the same time, we are called to love even our enemies in the yeah. New Testament. And, and that's in, in an environment that you and I actually really struggle to understand. I mean, our, our brothers and sisters in, in Afghanistan right now are called upon to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. And they know what that means. We, I, I don't know what, I, I honestly don't like really viscerally know what that even means because I have no enemies who are actually persecuting me. Nobody yeah. is dragging me into the street for my faith. Nobody is sort of beating me or, or you know, executing my husband or like none of these things are happening to me. But even if they were, I would need to love and pray for those people, mm-hmm. which is completely extraordinary. Now, we take that, or well, we don't take it, we sort of ignore that and think <laughs> that we have a license because of our beliefs in Jesus, we have a license to be sort of hostile, aggressive, unkind, um, unloving toward people with whom we strongly disagree. We don't. We don't have that right at all. In fact, I mean, Peter says we should always be ready, ready to give a reason for the hope that we have but we should do so with gentleness and respect. Yeah. And we should be the people who are modeling what it looks like to love those with whom you deeply disagree. And in our culture today, it's like, if you love somebody, you, you affirm everything they, they believe and do. And if you don't, then you must hate them. And you have to, there has to be a sort of hostility between you. We Christians should be breaking that down all day long. Instead, we're often actually buying into that and saying, well, you're hurling grenades, sort of rhetorical grenades at me, I'm going to hurl them right back. And, yeah. and I think that I'm representing Jesus by doing that. Now, there were moments when Jesus hurled rhetorical grenades in the Gospels. Almost always, they were directed at his tribe, like the, 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 the most religious folks among the Jews, his, his people. He wasn't actually hurling them at the, the Romans. I mean, he had some words to say about Herod. He was sort of <laughs> king of the Romans. But like, basically... Jesus' mm-hmm. hard words are for the Pharisees. And often we think, oh, yeah, we can take those hard words and we can sort of direct them toward our non-believing opponents. Yeah. No, actually, not at all. No, absolutely. And it would be one thing if we were open about that, right? And mm-hmm. I, I speak from that from my own experience, right? Like I'm not, this is uh, my own sin on display. It would be one thing if I was able to say, yeah, Jesus said this, but I'm going to do this. Mm. But is the um, the Tara Lee Cobble has this quote that I always come back to, which is we shouldn't scream where scripture whispers and we shouldn't whisper where scripture screams. Mm. And then therefore, it is no wonder that those who are not part of the family of believers look at us the way that your book kind of lays out, because we have not presented a more compelling counter narrative. And I love particularly the idea of this sort of purity nature of belief where you have to if you if you believe in something about this person, if you that you have to love and affirm everything they do, and if you mm-hmm. don't, you must hate everything that they are about. We should be leading in that. We should be showing the nuance to the world of what it looks like to love someone and disagree with them at the same time. Uh, and the world is in desperate need of that. 
Yeah, yeah. And we often think as Christians that we are on the moral high ground and our people, like certainly we individually and, and we sort of corporately, our tribe, we're, we're, we're on the moral high ground. We're the good guys. And, and it's our job to sort of look down on those outside and tell them where they're wrong. Now, there is a role we need to play in, in, in speaking to sin in the world, for sure. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we think we're the good guys, we haven't even understood the gospel. <laughs> the, the whole point of the good news of Jesus is that he came for bad people like us. And I love um, Paul, who's often sort of painted as the, the bad guy, especially when it comes to um, gender and sexuality in the Bible, because uh, he, he wrote you know, several of the texts that talk about, specifically talk about same-sex sexual relationships as being wrong um, and not, not appropriate to God's people. And so people think, you know, Paul, he's this sort of judgmental, homophobic bigot who, you know, is self-righteous and just doesn't get it. But I, I love how in, in um, 1 Timothy, right after Paul has listed gay relationships, actually right alongside sort of man-stealing, sort of enslaving people as things that are against God's law, he then says that just a couple of verses later, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Like Paul thinks he is the worst sinner he knows. And it's only, he says, you know, it's, it, he's only saved because God wanted to show how somebody even as bad as Paul could be saved. So I think even I find myself in conversation with people about um, you know, issues where we strongly disagree. I can very quickly start defending myself and think that I'm defending Jesus. Actually, I'm not, <laughs> not at all. I, I should be ready to say, yes, I'm actually very sinful. Yes, even like Christians who have gone before me, Christians who are around me, also very sinful. We should be the first to recognize, and for example, I think one of the ways that we have gone very wrong, when I say we, I'm talking as a sort of white evangelical myself, one of the ways we've gone very wrong is to think that if we properly recognize and repent of the ways in which white evangelicals like me have behaved in utterly sinful ways toward our black brothers and sisters, um, you know, through slavery, through segregation, through Jim Crow laws, et cetera. Um, if, we, if we can't like properly recognize that and properly repent of that, face up to that, we're not, we're not sort of defending the church from attacks from the outside. We're actually holding on to sin. Yeah. So we, we and when I say we, this is also a kind of complicated thing because people tend to say, well, I mean, I, I wasn't personally born in the 60s. Right. So it's not it's not me it's not my my people who did this, which is fine so long as we also will say it wasn't my people who fought in World War Two, and that's a, a thing especially this is uh-huh. you know coming from the UK, we we spend a lot of time celebrating like our great victory over the Nazis mm-hmm. and how you know we were so so tough and strong and, and you know beat the bad guys, um, and I think you know my understanding for Americans is you guys. Uh, I'm pretty proud of the role that you played in, in the Second World War as well. Praise yeah. God for that. Sure. But yeah, every, either, about every four movies are about that. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, either that, that's our people mm-hmm. and the folks who were promulgating um, segregation and Jim Crow laws and all the things are also our people. Yeah. Or we can't claim either. So we, we, need, to either, we need to either have a corporate mindset when it comes to both the glorious things and the shameful things or neither. So if you and I only want to think in individual terms, I mean, okay, maybe, but we need to make sure we don't talk as as if it was our people. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.
Are we shaping kids with lasting faith? Let's invest in building resilient disciples today through the Awana Resilient Child Discipleship Training. At these one-day events hosted from October to March in Nashville, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, Tampa, and online, you'll gather with fellow ministry leaders to learn how to create engaging experiences kids will not wanna miss, three easy steps to effective child discipleship, and how not to lose our kids to today's culture. Through five sessions, you'll be introduced to resilient child discipleship and the 3B discipleship formation pathway. You and your leaders will gain a strategy to create a child discipleship culture in your local church, practices to implement in your ministry, at church, and at home, and insights from the new research book from the Barna Group and Awana, Children's Ministry in a New Reality, the largest child discipleship study done in over 20 years. One day of training can help change the trajectory of your discipleship and form generations of Christ followers. Invest in your team, invest in your kids, invest in the future of your church today. Secure your seat at events.awana.org. Where I want to take this is I think you begin to unpack and what I hope people are picking up on who are listening to us is the ways in which you are able to communicate complex issues in a very accessible way. Because what I so value about the book and, or I should say the books, <laughs> is that, is your ability to take these feelings that people have, these complex feelings, and you're beginning to put handles around them for folks that are deeply biblical, but also I think deeply able to resonate in today's cultural moment. I'm curious for, particularly for 10 questions, you know, we talk about resilient child discipleship. And I think for folks, when they see anything related to teens, they're like, oh man, is this a handbook on how I can parent my teen? Because this is great. Like I need, I need this desperately in my life um, because I don't know what's going on with my teenager right now. But I imagine that's not, you didn't write it for a parenting handbook. Um, how, how have you heard, you know, in the response to this book, this book being used for discipleship? Are people reading it like a study guide or people reading it in small groups? Like really practically, how are people digesting this book to further their relationship with Jesus? Yeah, I've heard a whole range actually, which has been super encouraging. So I've heard from some people who, you know, hey, I'm a youth leader and I'm going through this with with my group. Great. I've heard from parents who are saying, I'm reading this book alongside my kids and we're sort mm -hmm. of having a little book group and discussing, you know, one chapter every week, which is great. I've heard from, I think my favorite was an email from a woman who said that she'd bought my book for her daughter, who is apparently you know, quite resistant to Christian things. And her daughter had said that she was not interested in reading it. So then her mum had been a little bit disappointed, but she, I think she'd like left it on the bookshelf or something. And then, she, then she'd caught her daughter, in fact, reading it. As in she hadn't like walked it, she'd sort of seen, I don't know, she was up the stairs or something, she'd mm -hmm. seen it, there was her daughter in the living room sitting on the couch, actually reading the book quite intently for quite a long time. And so the, I think the mum carefully just kind of kept out of the way. Um, but I was super encouraged by that because yeah. um, and by a, a delightful 15-year-old boy who emailed me, um, told me how much he did enjoyed it. He'd become a Christian just a year ago. And not to make generalizations about teenage boys, but I'm told that not all teenage boys are very big on reading. You know, it's not <laughs> at least not the stereotype of teenage boys that they sort of read a whole lot. Yeah. And so yeah. I was super encouraged. My, my hope with the book was that I'll be able to speak to, you know, teenage boys as, as well as, um, you know, girls. And, and I think the age range 
for which this book will be appropriate is actually reasonably large. I, um, I wrote it so that my now 11 year old um, could, could comfortably read it and find it helpful. Um, but there are certainly some, you know, older teens and even young adults who might find it actually more helpful than confronting Christianity just because it is more, you know, shorter, more accessible, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, and that's such a needed thing, I think, in the kingdom right now, like you alluded to, like to speak to folks in the in that age range uh, is a really valuable tool right now. I'm curious for you personally, I think it's a particular kind of person who gets drawn into the world of apologetics um, and gets drawn into the world of, um, for lack of a better term, making the case for Jesus this way. Uh, how did we use this term around here called a loving, caring adult? And the basic idea of it is kids today need loving, caring adults, a community of loving, caring adults around them. And you can see in data the difference that just one person in their life who makes them feel like they belong mm. makes a difference in their discipleship. Mm. Um, and that's the people who are listening to this podcast are those loving, caring adults. Uh, who was a loving, caring adult for you? I grew up in in what I sort of described as a mixed Christian family. I, you know, when people say, did you grow up in a Christian family? If I say yes, they sort of imagine a family actually much more like my husband's, which was, um, you know, parents raised in evangelical churches, going weekly to evangelical churches, vacation Bible school, you know, the whole mm -hmm. whole nine yards, as they say. Um, my family was rather different. My, my mum's entire family is Catholic. Um, my dad's family is sort of Anglican, Church of England type Um but a, a real mixture within the family as to whether people went to church because they believed at all what was being preached or whether it was just kind of what you did on a Sunday morning if you were a certain kind of person. So sure. um, our version of cultural Christianity in the UK, which looks a bit different from here. And and I think my, my parents really sort of found their own faith um, somewhat along the way, um, So I, which the pros and cons to that, but I felt like when I, you know, at the age of nine, at least, I was very sure about Jesus, but it never felt like this is my parents' faith that I then sort of have to figure out how to make it mine. It actually felt like mine from That's the first. Um, yeah. And I was always, you know, from that time onwards in quite academic schooling environments with um, friends who were, you know, at least as smart as me, often more so, uh, who weren't Christians remotely. And so from quite an early age, I was having conversations with friends about why I believed in Jesus. Mm. Um, and I was never one to sort of just keep it to myself. I, you know, I, sort of, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, partly I don't think there's a way to really be a Christian and do that. Um, mm. And so I, I sort of was used from the first to being the odd one out in the room. Um, and as I you know, went into college and uh, through a PhD program in English literature, um, partly because I enjoyed Shakespeare and partly because I wanted to hang out with the students who had come from all over the world, most of them not Christians, and it was actually a much, it was an easy opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. And then ended up going to, to seminary, which hadn't originally been my plan, um, and, and marrying Brian, which also hadn't been my plan. I was not at all planning to leave the UK. Uh, and it felt, honestly, it felt like a really strange move from a relatively gospel poor country like the UK to a relatively gospel rich country like the US. Sure. And I had to really grieve that and trust the Lord um, that he knew best because um, my husband was one of the few Americans I know who really didn't want to live in England. Having tried it for five years, he was not, he was not into it. Um, so I over here and, and I ended up working for an organization called the Veritas Forum, mm -hmm. 
which was partnering with campus ministries in university settings across the US and in Europe to help them host events where typically a Christian professor would be talking about his or her faith, um, often in dialogue with a, a non-believing professor. And through that, I got to meet a whole range of extraordinary people who are world-class experts in their field, who would be recognized as such by other non-Christians. I think often within, especially in the world of apologetics, we say, you know, so-and-so is a world-class philosopher, by which we mean we Christians think he's really good, but actually he may not be known at all, you know, beyond this, right. beyond our world. But, you know, people who are at the absolute top of their field, places like, you know, Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, um, it were very serious followers of Jesus. You know, some of whom became Christians in childhood or teenage years, others in, in early adulthood or even later in adulthood. And hearing their stories of their own faith and how they related their work to, um, to their faith in Jesus. I just felt like at that point, like I had a, a kind of roadmap of where things were at that I wanted to share mm -hmm. with the world. So confronting Christianity and, and then subsequently 10 questions every teen should ask, it's, I'm less of an author and more of a curator, honestly, sort of gathering mm -hmm. ideas um, and, and insights from a whole range of people and organizing them um, so that they can be applied to the, the big questions that we're all facing and, and you know, folks can get access to the to the real experts. I'm not really an expert on anything other than prisons and Shakespeare, which no one's much interested in. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm good at knowing where the experts are and sort of translating their work for a more popular audience. Well, you do it very well. Um, the last thing I want to ask you is one of the things that stands out to me is the ways in which different generations are going to approach this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, that there was a, you know, we talk all the time on this podcast about this current moment and sort of this idea of being in what several folks call a post-Christian culture compared to an environment, particularly in America, where folks grew up that was much more gospel-rich, to, uh, to use that term. For someone who is coming from a background that is more gospel-rich, what is the sort of intellectual work required to recognize that we are in a different world? Because I think your book does a great job of laying out the questions, but I'm curious for folks who, there might be folks who are listening to this who feel like they don't need it, and I would implore them to check it out instead. How do we make, how do we make the case to that type of person, the person who, who might feel like uh, some of the sort of post-Christian conversation is overblown, and that, you know, actually, if we just really batten down the hatches, we're gonna be okay. Gosh, so much in that question. And I am always I always push back slightly on the idea that we are in a, a post-Christian culture. I think Great. it's true in some senses and not in others. So maybe I'll start by explaining what I, what I mean by yeah, that. Yeah, please do. Um, it, number one, there's been this, this very strong idea that I think both Christians and non-Christians have believed to varying degrees for, for most of my lifetime, which is that the world is, the world in general certainly the West um, is, is becoming less Christian. Um, and there are a couple of problems with this. One is that actually, if we look at what's happening around the world, we're seeing more people becoming Christians and not fewer. And, and that's not just because the population is growing, actually the proportion of, of Christians that, um, are, or people at least who would identify as Christians uh, between now and, and sort of 2060, now it's about 31% of the world that identifies as Christian, and by 2060, it'll probably be about 32%. So not, oh. not a major growth, but certainly not a, a decline. Yeah. Um, whereas folks who don't identify with any particular religious tradition, that proportion is expected to decline in the same time period from about 16% to about 13%. So, so the idea that the world is sort of becoming less religious in general and less Christian in particular 
actually isn't true. The, the reason we think that is because we over-index on white men in, in the West. Huh. We, we don't pay attention. Sure. Okay. Live, and we actually don't pay attention to you know, women and people of color as, as much. Um, and atheism, for example, is, is very much um, correlated with being either a white Western man or living in a communist regime. Like that's the sort of two places to, to find, to, to fish for atheists. So we have this idea that the world is becoming sort of less religious, less, less Christian overall. And I think that needs to be dismantled both for us Christians and for our non-Christian friends. We also have this idea that um, there is this sort of glorious Christian past to which, you know, if only we could get back there, wouldn't it be great? And that's true, I think, in the UK where I come from and in, and in the US. But given that we're in the US, I'll just examine that for a second. It's, it's really easy to think, you know, everything was going well until the 1960s. And then there was the sexual revolution and abortion, which, to be clear, grieves my heart deeply. And I'm very strongly pro-life. So don't hit, don't mishear me as saying any of this doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. um, we have the, the sexual revolution, uh, the pill that, you know, great news enabled women to have commitment-free sex, just as men had been doing for, for centuries without um, consequences. That, that rolled into the um, gay rights movement. That's rolled into the transgender rights movement. So really, like, everything was going great. And then the 1960s came. And sort of the wheels started coming off the car. As I said, there's, there's a thread of truth to that. But the, the 60s was also the civil rights movement and the first time that black Americans were getting any measure of justice. Mm -hmm. So if we look back to the sort of pre-60s glorious Christian past, we're calling a glorious Christian past a world in which, you know, my kids are in public school right now and, and, and several of their closest friends, in fact, both my daughters, probably their closest sort of school friend in each case is black. We're going back to a world where they, they were not even educated together. Right. In fact, there was sort of horrific injustice. Um, and so, so it's not that, that our previous world was sort of more Christian. There are actually massive ways in which it was totally failing to live up to Christian ethics. While at the same time, there are other ways where, where our Christian ethics was, was more sort of seen as a societal norm. So if people can find that uh, upsetting and destabilizing in one sense. But it, actually, I think rather than harking back to this glorious past, that if we, only we can get back there, I think we need to look forward to building a more glorious future. Amen. I think we had the opportunity for a, a kind of rediscovery of Christian ethics across the board that's founded on Jesus's death and resurrection and his, his call to us to be his body on this earth, um, which is an incredibly intimate and powerful thing. Um, and where we're not sort of playing off justice and care and concern for the poor, for example, against um, care about sexual ethics, but they're actually seeing sort of those pieces as, as pulling together. The Resilient Disciples podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient child disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from the conversation as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. 
The podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by me, Marlon Washington, and hosted by Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip-hop artist Josiah Williams and hits by Jude. You also heard I'll Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from the album Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.